Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So we occasionally have a little bit of a lull in uh, newsworthy topics or relevant topics that we haven't already covered. This is one of those weeks, so we decided to ask the listeners uh, for basically some Q&A questions. Uh, we did this once before, and it was I – ke- I kept thinking it was recent, but it was back in 2016, so it wasn't that recent. It was almost two years ago. We're going to go through, kind of have like a, a miscellaneous day, and uh, let's hope let's see how it turns out. I think it should, it should be uh, pretty fun, I think. Um, I think we're going to leave like there's, I'll have a link in the show notes to the tweet that Marco sent out to ask for questions. If you respond there um, between now and next week, we're going to take a look at the questions. And if there's a lot of more great questions, we might do another round um, next week as well. So just if you have a burning question, this is a opportune time to ask it. So the first question comes from uh, Hakon Bogan, who asks, will React Native be the way forward for iOS development? And this was also asked in a, in a more uh, direct way by uh, somebody named Casey Liss. The way I feel about things like React Native and React, and, and this is with the giant caveat that I have used almost none of these types of systems. Uh, effectively, I, I have no experience with them. But it's really hard for anything that is not the official platform API and the official platform way to build things to really ever get like massive amounts of traction. Sometimes, you know, the the realities of the platform are a little bit different. Like I would say one case where a third party thing has totally taken over a platform is jQuery taking over JavaScript. Like if you search the web for how to do something in JavaScript, 95% of the answers you're going to see are really how to do it in jQuery because <laughs> they just assume of course everyone's using jQuery. Um with iOS it isn't that simple, you know, with iOS even great ideas from third parties about how applications should be built or what kind of frameworks or libraries they should be built on are really hard to get traction because iOS development is really big and also Apple has a pretty strong first party point of view and they keep moving it forward and everyone's already using it and invested in it. So it's really hard for anything like React or or any other kind of like alternative uh, interface framework or method of programming uh, to really take off unless Apple actually does something like that themselves as the official first party API. And I think too, I I struggle with these types of things. I think mostly just from a, like there are situations where they come into play, where if you are a company who needs to have a cross platform application, um, where tying directly to the natives, um, the native, the native libraries directly, um, is inconvenient for some reason that, you know, and usually the one I hear, you know, it's that you hear is it's like, well, we want to have an Android app and a iOS app. And we want to kind of use, we have some amount of more commonality between the two. So if you move up into a, a library like this, you get the advantage of being a bit more portable, um, in that way. Um, or you can certainly get into benefits around, um, like I know with a lot of React, it's a different way of programming where it's more event-driven, I believe. Um, it's And like you can think about your application in a different way, which is certainly, um, you know, could be useful. It's certainly not diminishing that. But I always struggle with these types of things because in, like in your example of jQuery, I think is a great one where JavaScript isn't something with it. There is a, a platform owner who is... Um, intentionally and specifically driving things forward you know no one owns javascript in the way that apple owns ios or that google owns 
uh, Android, that there is not this quite, that there isn't this single point of direction, that it's a more, you know, like in general, the community agreed that jQuery was a great baseline and sort of adopted it as a result. Um, but what I struggle with, with something like any of these types of things is it means that I'm now dependent at, to, on, on sort of in, in, in two levels to, uh, the further direction from application, because every year Apple is going to change the platform in some way uh, we expect, and they're going to be pushing it in a certain direction. And then now I'm also, if I'm, which I'm, I'm currently reliant on, like I'm under no illusions that I'm sort of free from this, that I'm, you know, I, I'm just like developing off of my own and not, um, dependent on anyone else. I'm depend- dependent on Apple, but that's, but that, that one's unavoidable. If I also then tie myself to be dependent on, in this case, react, it's like, so Apple makes a change. I have to then wait for React to make that change, and then I can start making my changes. Or Apple pushes things in a different direction, and then suddenly I, you know, I said you sort of I have to wait for these dominoes to fall before I can really um, make changes. And that just always makes me nervous. Or like if React just stops being worked on, and suddenly I'm in kind of a dead end um, platform that I can't, you know, for whatever reason I can't update my application, or there's some weird tool chain problem, and suddenly I can't do these things like i have a certain if, if if apple stops updating ios well the platform is probably dead like it's it's no longer a, a useful or interesting thing but there are plenty of reasons why um a, th- a third party thing might not be um continue to be worked on and not be as viable and so i'm putting my for me i find the risk of putting my code base in this kind of tenuous place to not pay off the potential benefits um even though those potential benefits are you know real and tangible things um, it's never gotten to a place that it seems like it made sense to do um, unless you have really compelling specific reasons otherwise. All right. Our next question comes from Rick Allen, who asked, what is your approach to writing reusable and maintainable code? How do you decide whether, whether something needs refactoring? And he says he, he, tends to write very, he tends to write very focused code on the problem at hand and sometimes ends up having duplicate code. This is something for me that... I, I try very hard to never like, you know, copy uh, copy and paste like two files from one project into another. For instance, um, like I was just yesterday, I was I was uh, I had a, I had a need for uh, writing out a wave file for a utility I'm writing on the Mac. Don't worry, it's nothing exciting. Uh, but it's <laughs> and and I already had wave writing code for. Uh, for Sidetrack, the, the the private app that I use to sync up uh, Double Ender podcast tracks. And the needs were going to be very slightly different between the two. And I thought, you know, I, I could just copy this over. I could, you know, I copy it over and modify it. But then, then I have two different files that are similar, but, you know, not, but it's not, it's two different representations of the same function in two different files and two different projects that are almost the same. And it's like, well, then what if I find a bug in one and I fix it in that one? I don't, and I don't remember to fix it in the other one. Like that's it, that's kind of you know inefficient and and potentially bug prone for the future. So, what I usually do for reusable or reused code is just basically try to make a private library that I can then add as a Git submodule to both projects. And usually, you know, and I, so I host it on GitHub. I have its own its own like separate project for these private libraries. I don't have a large number of these. I have maybe like five or six of them. 
Um, but you know, things like my iOS utilities library, um, some extra things on top of the iOS utilities that that aren't really ready for public consumption, but that I use as kind of like my like private you know, utilities, um, my audio engine and different parts of my audio engine and different functions for audio engines. Those are kind of all separated into a library, um, and and so I'm able to share that code. And my idea basically is like. If I'm if it's one library that I'm sharing as a Git submodule in all the projects that use it, then I you know any bug fixing in one benefits all of them, and it's worth the slight overhead um, to make the code reusable and generalized to some degree. It's worth that overhead to have that shared bug fixing uh, and shared labor potential of doing that. Um, as for refactoring, I'm not a big refactorer. I still think that refactoring is largely a construct. It's largely a euphemism for rewriting in in practice a lot. I know that isn't officially what it means, but in practice, I think refactoring often means I really just want to rewrite this because I'm a programmer and all programmers always want to rewrite everything that they come across. Uh, but I know rewriting is a bad thing. So I'm going to call it refactoring even though I'm putting in enough work and making enough changes that I'm basically rewriting it. <laughs> so uh, I I have never found a good balance between refactoring and rewriting, and I'm not sure anyone else has either. <laughs> but, uh, but regardless, I'm sure Casey will yell at us for this uh, if he didn't yell at us already for the first answer about RX Swift. Uh, but uh, I don't really do refactoring. I, do, I will occasionally do a rewrite, but very occasionally, only when it's really necessary. Yeah, I'm in some ways it's almost like a it's a funny thing to, to wade into but like i as a general rule don't worry too much about duplication um between projects like i don't have any shared libraries that i use between um, my various products even though many of them have similar um, attributes to them um you know so obviously a lot of them deal with for example the the health framework like a lot of my apps read and write data from the health framework um what I tend to do for my focus is around, um, I try and in order to make my code very maintainable and very focused, I just focus on, I, I have certain patterns that I use, um, across multiple applications, you know, in terms of like the way that I structure my requests to health, for example, are, are very similar across apps. But in, in my experience, trying to make something um, sort of work across multiple most work across multiple uses more often than not tends to make it more cumbersome to use um, which often in a weird way makes it harder to maintain um, that I then because you have the benefit in the sense of there's always the concept of like well I find a bug I can fix it and then it you know it's fixed for everybody um, which is is a great promise but in practice I often found when I used to do that kind of thing more specifically, is it also it creates a, another room for a new bug um, in all the dependent applications um, that they may have been relying on what you are now considering to be a bug in this app. You know, in, in from one application I'm working on, it reads the data, it's, it gets it back, and it's like, oh, um, it's you know, it, 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 it the way that it was doing it now is different, and so oh, this actually yeah, maybe this is a bug, or I think it's a bug, and I make the change, and I'm actually breaking other things because these dependencies are much harder to remember about and plan for in that way, at least in my experience that you can, it's like, it's, you get a benefit in theory, in theory of having this sort of like this cascading bug fix, but you also have the downside of the cascading, like uncertainty about what this change is going to do to anything that depends on it. And so what I tend to do 
is try and write, um, you know, I, I try and have similar patterns across my apps, but they're very focused on the problems and the things that they're trying to do. Um, and so I can, I can build and learn from the past experience without necessarily needing to reuse that code, um, specifically. And I found that works reasonably well. Um, I think on the refactoring side of things, I'm very much like you, if it's, if it is, if it isn't broken, I, I don't tend to go back in and change it. Uh, I find that it, I, it's far more likely that I'm going to introduce problems than that I'm actually going to solve things. Um, and I think refactoring's place um, probably comes in more into play when you get into a larger a team organization. And the, the situations where I have found refactoring to be a actually productive thing is where you're trying to create and force uniformity um, across a code base where it is written by five or six different people that sometimes you might need to go back and, you know, refactor something to or rewrite it or change it to make it more in line with a broader code base. Um, that is certainly something that I found productive just from a uniformity perspective. But still, it's something that is very rare and very rarely actually useful that I'd rather typically spend that time making a new, making the, uh, making the product, adding a new feature, making the product better, making it faster, doing those types of work, um, than doing something that is primarily beneficial ostensibly for me, the developer. I'd rather put the focus on uh, external things that uh, customers are actually going to see and experience and feel. Colin Weir asks, what are some types of apps you could build that would help teach you some core concepts beyond just the typical hello world example? So for instance, like, you know, building a notes app would teach you X, Y, and Z. So I think for for this, I mean, this is a great question. I, if you're trying to learn and, and you're trying to learn something beyond Hello World, the number one answer really is try to build something that you are really motivated to make happen that is also practical to achieve with your level of skill and time. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to, you know, make the next AAA video game and you've never programmed before, like this, this might be a problem for you, but, you know, you can do, th- do things that are more achievable. That being said, any any like useful real like real world useful app that you pick to try to tackle, first of all, if you're motivated to do it, that'll get you through you know the grind of learning. Um, so that's that's how I think almost all programmers learn is basically they want something to exist, so they kind of plow through until they until they make it exist. Um, but almost everything you pick besides Hello World is going to teach you a lot of different things. You know, just by by necessity. So for instance, like. If you are trying to write a game, for instance, which is a, a lot of a lot of times people get into it like when they're younger, mostly because they want to create games at first, and it's often people's first programs, like something you know, a basic little game. And making a game teaches you all sorts of crazy stuff. You learn lots of things about you know 3D or 2D graphics, geometry, linear algebra. Possibly, if you're at that those levels, you might be learning about physics. Uh, you know, even basic like ballistic type games, you're going to be dealing with physics on some level. Um, you're going to be dealing with textures and lighting and and colors and menus and music and you know level design and trying to make things fun and you know difficulty curves and you know like there's anything you do beyond Hello World, I think, will teach you different things. I would also say another major category of this would be dealing with user data. So, you know, doing something where people are entering data, where you are basically taking responsibility for it, which means that you have to care about things like data integrity, uh, backups, restore. Um, you might at some point have to deal with sync. And then sync, you have to deal with privacy and and other, you know, it's like there's, there's lots of, like, any problem area you pick will naturally sprawl into like into like tons of different areas. So 
I would say there isn't like one particular type of app that you should do after you learn the basics of Hello World. I would say just do the one you're motivated to and all of it, like so much will just naturally flow from that, that as soon as you, you know, get to step one, steps two through five are going to be, are going to become obvious to you. Like, oh, now that I have this, now I should really add this, this, and this. And then you can, you know, the same way you learn how to do the first part, you can learn how to do the rest just one by one. Yeah. And I think too, there's something to be said for, it's the, it's like build something that actually does something. Um, I think is just, which is sort of the, in some ways is inherent in this question is that like doing these contrived examples that you often end up with in like a, a programming book or something like that. Um, you're like, I, I, in my experience, I'm, it's far more interesting and I learn much more when I try and solve a real problem. Um, that I have in my life or that someone I know would use, um, even if it's not an app that you expect to ship or make money from or any of those types of things, but it's something that is practical, that you're solving an actual problem. You're not inventing a problem and then inventing a solution, um, I think is helpful. Uh, something I'd also say that is really useful is to think about what types of frameworks or areas of development you are most interested in. Um, and build an app to get used to doing that. I want, I've learned some of my best learning um, to buy. I just sort of like pick a framework that I don't have a lot of experience with. And I just try and make some app that uses it. And, you know, sometimes for example, like I've, I've never shipped a, a photos app, but I've built and played with the photos frameworks just because I'm curious about how they work. And there's something nice about sort of building an application that is focused on one framework or one area um, of iOS that lets you kind of, you can drill in and get sort of get deeper more quickly into a problem rather than trying to do, do something that is, you know, that touches on lots of different technologies and sort of integrates them. Um, that's a really interesting problem. And honestly, that's probably where down the road, as you get more experience, that's where most of your sort of the, the value that you're going to be able to provide in your products is going to come from, you know, combining interesting technologies together. But when you're learning, I find it's great to just focus on one technology, get re and sort of dive into it and get good at it and kind of have that experience. And you're able to get to something useful much more quickly that way. Mike and Steven ask, who is sponsoring this episode? Well, Mike and Steven, this episode is brought to you by Linode. With Linode, you'll have access to a suite of powerful hosting options. With prices starting at just $5 a month, you can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers, including David and I. Linode knows how important it is to get the help that you want and need. And I've, you know, I've been using Linode myself for, geez, something like eight years or maybe even more than that now. It's been a long time. I've dealt with their support here and there, and it's been wonderful. I, I really have been, I have no complaints. It is fantastic support. They also have the best control panel I've ever seen at a web host. I have, I've probably been with at least 15 or 20 web hosts by now in my career. And the control panels are usually awful. Linode's is wonderful. It's nicely designed. It's intuitive. It's very capable. There's lots of things you can do without filing a support ticket to try to you know wait for them to do it for you. You can even do things like you know resize, upgrade your your uh, server sizes and resources. You can you can resize disk images. Like you can you can shut down the server, resize the disk, and it boots up and it just has more space. You don't have to like repartition. You don't lose any data. It's it's remarkable like how good all this stuff is. Uh, and of course, they have lots of other wonderful features that won't even fit in this ad read, things like two-factor authentication, a whole API, lots of great stuff. 
Linode has fantastic pricing options available. Plans start at one gig of RAM for just five bucks a month. And they also now offer high memory plans that prioritize RAM over the other resources. If you need that, those start with 16 gigs of RAM and they, they go up from there. So our listeners can sign up at linode.com slash radar to support us and get $20 towards any Linode plan. So on that $5 a month plan, that's four free months. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. So go to linode.com slash radar to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or use promo code RADAR2018 at checkout. Thank you so much to Linode for hosting all my stuff and supporting this show. Chris Sterner asks... Any tips to mastering the art of packing for conferences or travel trips like underscore David Smith, which I believe is you. This is in reference to the recent discussion on ATP we had last week or the week before about uh, packing cubes and backpacks. And we mentioned how you seem to be like this master traveler. Like whenever we travel and you're there, you, you have like basically like a handbag sized backpack. And out of that comes all the things you need for a month. Like how, how do you do this? So you, you're exaggerating the size of my backpack. Barely. But, uh, yes, it is. It is something that I, um, it's, it's such a funny question to answer in public, but like would so a 17 inch MacBook pro fit in your backpack that you use for travel? And 15 inch. Would, <laughs> See? So you can fit like in the space that, that a 17 inch MacBook pro would not fit. You fit like a week's worth of everything you need. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so I think probably it's fair to say I, so yes, I, I, I tend to pack light. Um, that is something that I have developed over the, you know, over many years that is, it's just a tendency that I have. And I think the first is probably the best place to start. I think is if someone wants to sort of pack light is understanding why you might want to do this. And first is just to say there is something just delightful when you're traveling to have less things with you, um, that it's, you know, when you walk through an airport, when you're trying to, especially if you're going to a place that you then, you know, like you, you have a, have to walk, you know, a quarter mile or a half a mile or something like having lots of stuff is just burdensome. And I think also this has become more manifest for me, um, since I, ha- I have children. And so now often, you know, you know, I have to carry their stuff as well as my stuff. And so minimizing the amount of stuff that I take on when I'm traveling or when I'm doing trips um, is just useful um, in that in that way. And so once you get used to it, it's really kind of hard to go back to the world where you pack lots of stuff, you have like, you know, big luggage, um, and you just kind of muddle through with that. Like once you can wrap your head around, well, I don't actually need nearly as much stuff as I think I do uh, when I go on trips and kind of get used to the realities of that. So that's sort of the main reason why I do this. And I think for me, it's the act the technique and the approach I take is coming from uh, a backpacking background. So I, when I grew growing up, I was in Boy Scouts and we did a lot of uh, backpacking and that was like the thing that we did. And I was, you know, I've hiked hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, backpacking and something that you very quickly get used to when you do that kind of, uh, that kind of travel where you are literally taking everything that you will have with you for the entire trip, putting it in your, on your back and then carrying it, you know, for, you know, 10 miles a day, 20 miles a day, whatever it is you're doing. Um, you very quickly start to wonder like, do I really need this? Um, is this really something that I want, I want to, you know, I want to carry with me up this mountain. Um, and so it creates that kind of a mentality. Um, more practically, I think for people who might be thinking of doing lightening their load is something that I started doing that I think is a really just good discipline in general for, um, packing and understanding what you need is every time you get back from a trip, Take, take all of the things that you didn't actually need or wear or you brought with you just in case and, you know, pile them up on your, you know, on your bed when you're unpacking or something like that. And 
you can very quickly, you, you start to very quickly see trends. If you do this over a course of a couple of trips, you'll start to see that, man, I always bring like three, like three pairs of jeans and I only end up wearing two. Like, why am I bringing the third pair? Or, you know, I always, I always feel like I'm going to need this thing and I never actually do. And there are certainly cases where, you know, you can pack defensively where like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have everything I could ever possibly ever need. And it'll, you know, I'm going to cover all my bases and then I will never need to need, need anything else. It's like, okay, maybe, um, uh, but that's coming at the, you know, that, that preparedness is coming at the expense of having to then, you know, carry this with you everywhere you go versus the reality that in most places, um, if you're, you know, if you're traveling to any urbanized area, almost everything you could ever need can be purchased with a credit card, um, at very short notice, you know, in that's just like life, you know, you can, you can, if you're in the United States, you know, something like you, there's probably always going to be a target or a Walmart somewhere nearby that you can get almost anything you need. Um, and in general, that really actually happens. Like if you are thoughtful about what it is that you're going to take with you, you don't need nearly as much as you think. And so on the first side, it's like reduce what you're going to bring, in terms of actually packing it into a small pace, a small case, um, the biggest thing I find there is to just pack, give yourself less space, and you will uh, naturally bring less stuff. That if this is it's sort of like uh, I think it's Parkinson's law, or well, there's one of these like uh, software development uh, sort of overarching laws, which is you know t- uh, work expands to fill the time allocated. You know, so if your boss <laughs> gives you two weeks to finish something, it'll take two weeks. If your boss gave you the same amount of work um, and said you had to do it in a week and a half, somehow magically you could do it in a week and a half. Um, that you know, work tends to ex- everything tends to sort of expand to fill the space available. And so when you're packing, give yourself a smaller bag and you will sort of, you, you will naturally find your way to make it work. And that's just something that I think is useful that you want to, you know, like I have a nice backpack that, um, is, is good for this kind of thing. It has a nice big, you know, relatively big, it's very space efficient. It hasn't, it's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of wasted space inside of it, but by limiting myself to that, you are forced to make make more specific choices. Like in some ways I love and I hate when I have to take like a big check suitcase um, because I'm bringing something else with me that I um, can't fit into a a smaller bag. It's like, it's great insofar as it's like, now I don't have to make these choices, but it's bad in the sense that I end up bringing way more stuff than I actually need. And it ends up just being a big waste of uh, a waste of effort. So um, I don't know. That's the approach I take. Um, packing cubes are awesome. I really like them. I know they're somewhat controversial. Some people love them. Some people don't. I've found that they are just very useful for um, just organizing the things that you have. That it's almost every suitcase is just a one big cavern and then tends to have a bunch of small pockets on the sides. And, you know, it's like if most people love having little pockets um, in the backpack that they use on day to day basis because it's useful to organize and partition your stuff and to be able to remember where something is and to be able to take one thing out without having to mess up everything else. Um, and so packing cubes are great for that, that you're able to, you know, if you want to just, if you just need a fresh pair of socks, you can just take the sock cube out. Um, and you don't need to like muscle, you know, sort of rustle through all your nice, new, nice shirts and, you know, sort of mess everything up in order to do that. Um, so, uh, I highly recommend packing cubes, but yeah, otherwise that's, that's the approach I take. And then, um, uh, if you, if you go down this road, then apparently everyone thinks it's really weird and, um, pokes fun at you about it, but you know, you, you, you're the last <laughs> laugh because you're not tired from carrying around heavy suitcases. It, when when we when we poke fun at you when we see it, it's like it's more out of just amazement that like 
how did he do that? Like, how, how did you fit everything you have? How, where did that laptop come from? Like stuff like that. <laughs> well, the thing that's funny is I think people often, you imagine things need to take more space than they actually do. Um, like, or in just that you can get away with having less stuff. And, you know, it's not that I'm like worried. It's not that I'm, I'm taking less stuff to take less stuff. Like there's not like the, the point is not to hear, have a very small backpack. Like it's not to not have the things that I need. But it's to bring only the essentials and to bring only the things that uh, that, that that I need, and so um, you know it's it seems it seems impossible until you try. And then, like I said, I think the best place to start for anyone who wants to pack less is to every time you don't use something on a trip, make sure that you look at it and sort of internalize how how big that was, how heavy it was, and then the next time you're packing, maybe you'll be slightly more reluctant to to take it with you. And you know, ten years of doing that, and pretty quickly you take a lot less stuff. And to bring this back around to software development a little bit, just to tie it up, one thing that I, a similar experience I had that I think is also just a worthwhile thing to think through is for years, I always brought a big 15-inch laptop with me everywhere I went because I was like, oh, what if on the road, I'm going to need, you know, a server's going to go down or I'm going to need to fix something. Uh, I'll, need a, I'll, I'll need a big laptop. And then I realized, well, I could just take a 12-inch MacBook. And then more recently, I've even gotten to the point where I realized I can set up my phone to do like 99% of the things that I would ever need to do on an emergency basis. The only thing I really can't do is, you know, build and run Xcode. Um, and so, but that's very rarely something that I'm going to have to do on like an emergency basis, you know? And so, and if the reality there is it's like, if on an emergency basis, I absolutely needed to do something like almost, I'm sure I can find a Mac somewhere for this incredibly unlikely event that I very have never actually happened in 10 years of being a professional developer um so <laughs> like i don't think this is really going to happen and if it did well i would just you know I, my source code is available to me when i'm traveling through various means and i can just get you know get something build it run it and submit it and it would be fine so in the same way you know scale down the things that you are thinking that you're taking with you just be thoughtful about it, you know, actually do it and like reboot a machine from your phone to actually prove to yourself that you can do it before you rely on doing that. You know, don't be foolish about this, but also be thoughtful about it. I love that you've reached the point where a laptop that can fit in your jacket pocket is no longer is too big. It's too big. Way <laughs> too awesome. big. I mean, it's so much bigger than an iPhone. If you see iPhones, they're so, so, so small. Oh, my God. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for uh, enjoying our second QA episode. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.